Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our class on the household codes of the scriptures. And we're, of course, those going to the German heading, the House Tafel text. We've looked at a number already. And if you recall, last week we left off in the middle of 1 Peter chapter 2. So we're looking at that and we're wending our way to two other places in the scriptures. We are wending our way to Romans 13 and Revelation 13, where we have two very contrasting and yet complementary takes on the relationship we have in this fallen world to government. So we'll be looking at that, and then what we'll do is we'll look to see what our catechism has to say about these dynamics, and then look at the table of duties as a way of tying all these texts together so that we have a better understanding of not only vocation, God's holy calling to these various roles and uh, states in society, but then also the three estates, the estate of the family, of the church, and of the state itself. So that's where we are headed. Let's open with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, in First Peter chapter 2, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible uh, or an app that you can turn on, we do have some Bibles up here on the side. With the added bonus, you can sneak up and grab them without being on the Internet. So you are safe to come up to the sides if you need. In First Peter, and of course we introduced this last week and have, had gone some ways into it, especially focusing on what it means to be members of the royal priesthood. So you recall that, uh, for example, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 4, we'll get us there. So as you come to him, come to Christ, a living stone, that is Christ is the living stone here, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let's pause there and use this text just to recap and bring us back into the context. So, Here, of course, you have come to Christ, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, that is, as we're going to see the text unfold, a template and model even for our lives. So, we come to him, we are being built up with him into a spiritual house. In the sight of men, we will be rejected But in the sight of God, we will be chosen and precious. 
Likewise, we see that as a holy priesthood by baptism, if you're baptized, you are a holy priest, and that's an irrevocable status, then you are to offer spiritual sacrifices. And so that's the other frame in which we view our identity as Christians, not only as a holy priesthood, but as those who offer spiritual sacrifices. And then the nature of those spiritual sacrifices are what follows. All right. Now, you can recall from Paul in Romans 12, for example, he says that you are to make yourselves living sacrifices, which of course is quite the paradoxical way of speaking, isn't it? A sacrifice by nature is something you put to death. So you are ever living yet ever dying, ever crucified and ever risen. You see how that works in symmetry and identity with Christ. And thus the nature of our spiritual sacrifices is self-sacrifice within the context of vocation. And especially what's going to come to the fore in the text we look at today is self-sacrifice that takes on the form and shape of that which our Lord himself offers on the cross. So rejected by men, but gracious, that's kind of the translation of the ESV, as difficult as that is, a gracious thing in the sight of God when we suffer for doing what is right. All right, so a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. And if we jump over again, we covered all of this in detail last week. So if we jump over to verse 9, a parallel thought, but you are a chosen race. So in Christ Jesus, we become a race, a people that transcends all other racial identifiers. We become a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And so you have a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood. And we talked about, even though it's very common to talk about the priesthood of all believers, and that can clearly be understood rightly, we did mention that you don't find that phrase in the Book of Concord in Luther. And so we need to be cautious with our use of that priesthood of all believers, because very frequently what's imported into it is a false definition of priesthood. Namely, that priesthood means one who publicly preaches and administers the sacraments. Thus, priesthood of all believers means everyone a pastor or something like this. That's a false view, not a Lutheran view. What we find in Scripture, rather, is the royal priesthood or the holy priesthood. Well, if not proclaiming the word and administering the sacraments publicly, what is that priesthood of? What does it consist First place, offering spiritual sacrifices. And then as we continue through this verse, we'll see what the second main thing is that Peter highlights. So you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So whatever patriotism or allegiance or fealty we might have to the nations of this world, there is a patriotism, loyalty, and fealty that far transcends that and that is that we are part of a holy nation. Who is the king in that nation? Our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is so important for us to take a moment, even if it is elementary, and just absorb that fact that Christ does sit on the throne and he does reign and we are his holy nation and his kingdom is 
in this world, even though it is not of this world. And by the time God has shaken everything out in judgment, there will be only one kingdom remaining, and it will be that kingdom of our Lord and King Jesus Christ. So we can take great comfort in that, that whatever other political shenanigans are going on, whether it's going well or poorly, we're not going to put our trust in princes. We're going to put our trust in the Lord Jesus. Now, in our left-hand kingdom role, we're going to fight for what's right. We're going to, in our context, vote and be vocal about what's correct and true and best for our nation. But we're not going to somehow miss the penultimate and the ultimate distinction and think that the politics of this kingdom are ultimate. They're not. At best and at most, they're penultimate. The ultimate reality is the lordship and reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are told by none other than he himself that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. And so we can rest assured that, paradoxically as it may seem, everything's going exactly according to plan. He's got it all handled. All right, so a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Very beautiful language that God has purchased us, of course, not with gold or silver, but with the holy, precious blood of Christ, and thus we belong to him and are his now and always. All right, well, what is the purpose that, or in order that, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? So that is the purpose for his gathering you as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people after his own possession, so that here in this place we would proclaim his excellencies, him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the word of Christ, proclaiming the truth of Christ. So if we were to just look at the data we have here about what it means to be a holy priesthood or a royal priesthood, we would see two different things. We would see spiritual sacrifice, and we would see proclaiming his excellencies. Fairly clear? All right. So more to come, of course, on the spiritual sacrifices. All right. I think we spent a great deal of time last week uh, talking about the passions in verse 11, that as sojourners and exiles, it's difficult Greek to translate, but people who do not have a permanent home here in this place, we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So therein we have a sense already of of the spiritual sacrifice, that is the putting to death of the sinful passions within us to crucify the sinful flesh, is the language St. Paul uses. To drown the sinful flesh is the language that Luther uses when he describes the reality of living daily baptismal lives. So this is maybe the first shade here in in which is colored this idea of sacrifice, abstaining from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We spent some time talking about that 
probably the day in which our Lord Jesus Christ visits them to bring them into the kingdom with us. That's probably what's in view. The other option is final judgment, and that could be rightly understood. In context, it's just probably not that. Especially given the reference over at the end of chapter 2, if you look at uh, verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That shepherd, the poimena, and the overseer, the episcopon, we might translate as the pastor and bishop of your souls. And that language of overseer, episcopon, bishop, is the same language used here for visitation, episcopes, which is to visit. So it, ha- it seems to be colored with the idea that Christ, the good shepherd, comes and visits. All right, what else then? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Again, we see this thread running through our call in relationship to government, every human institution or form, uh, whether the emperor or governors. um, And we see then that we are subject to them for the Lord's sake. It's the same way that husbands or wives are subject to husbands. It's the same way that children are subject to parents, that slaves are subject to masters, or in our way of thinking, employees are subject to employers, not because of the worthiness of the person to whom we're subjecting ourselves, but because of the worthiness of Christ. And so that being subject to Christ in the forms that he gives is the way in which we conduct ourselves as a royal priesthood, sacrificing ourselves. All right, Um, we got a little further last week, and maybe it would be good for us to simply pick up at verse 18. I'm trying to hit the high spots here and important places of continuity so that when we get into this section, it doesn't stand out of context. In the section that begins in verse 18, we read, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, and again, here, unfair or unreasonable. And then 19, we get to kind of the first cue of why God has us do this. For this is a gracious thing, difficult to translate, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now, as we've seen in the other House Toffel text, this way of thinking isn't unique to the vocation of slaves and masters, but also to parents and children and husbands and wives, that when we submit ourselves and suffer sorrows, even if the sorrows come through injustice, this is a good and gracious, a God-pleasing thing. And it is part and parcel of our worship. So 
you know, Monday morning, your boss who asks you to do something obnoxious and tedious, and you think to yourself, well, I sure am underappreciated around here. And also, I find him to be rather annoying. He takes credit for every good thing that I do, and faults that aren't mine he lays at my doorstep, sometimes even in the staff meetings, in front of all, so I can hardly even defend myself. Why, on this particular Monday morning, would I do anything to serve him? And the answer, biblically speaking, that you glimpse here is because you're not serving him. You're serving Christ. And the form of your service to Christ then takes the form of serving this particular neighbor. Even if this particular neighbor is unjust, unfair, unworthy of your labors, not thankful, etc., other, the alternative, I mean, you can think of the alternative worldview, which is then work just becomes a miniature taste of hell. <laughs> because it's terrible work that you don't enjoy for the wealth of another person with no credit, with oppression, and nothing, nothing comes of it except for this kind of continual game of, well, I'll do a little less. I'll make this look really good even though my heart is far from it. There was a phrase I recently ran across, uh, silently quitting. And so that is, that is I'm still here, I'm, I'm still collecting a paycheck, I'm on time, I'm smiling, I'm dressed great, and I'm doing the least amount I possibly can do, and less and less if I can get away with it. That is completely unfulfilling. It may feel better than the alternative, but only by degree. And ultimately what it does is renders that particular vocation a kind of slavery and a kind of unhappiness. The less you give, the less fulfilled you are, the less invested you are, the more meaningless and senseless it all becomes. So you are free, I suppose, to wallow in that muck and mire if you want, but God has something here in holy vocation far greater than that. And that is to perceive things differently, that you're not serving the human being in front of you per se, you're serving Christ. Mindful of God, you submit yourself even to those who are unjust and unfair. And this is a pleasing thing in God's sight. Now, remember how we've talked in here about the two different ways in which we please God. We can think of this in the language of the baptismal language of sonship and I think it really helps clarify is God the Father pleased to have you as his baptized son and daughter yes and irrevocably so even if you completely rebel against him wish him dead Take everything you can from him. Go out and squander it on all the things that he would not have you squander it on and end up up to your neck in muck and mire, starving to death. When you come to your senses and return to God, you are still his son. You are still his daughter. That's the beautiful parable our Lord teaches. He wraps the robe of righteousness around you, puts the family ring on your finger and sandals on your feet and welcomes you to the feast of forgiveness that our Lord Jesus sets before us. 
He is pleased to have you as his son or daughter, irrespective of your progress or lack thereof. And by analogy, those of you who are parents know this. At the most disappointing time in which your children have completely let you down over and over and over again, even though you might be tempted to say, I wish I could sell them off, even still in your heart, you know you wouldn't. You love them, and in that deepest sense, you're pleased to have them as your children. And in fact, that fact that you are pleased to have them as your children is the very thing that makes you annoyed and want more for them than what they're currently doing. So that's the first sense in which God is pleased with us. So whether my son, as a, as a father, whether my son is having a great day or having a bad day, obeying me or disobeying me, I'm still pleased to have him as my son. But what if he chooses to do the right things and, and eschew the wrong things? That, too, makes me pleased, and pleased in a secondary sense, you see. And that's the kind of way in which God is pleased with us. It's not if we fail this, then he rejects us as his children. He's pleased to have us as his children. But then he's also pleased when we, as his children, are like father, like father, like son. And this pleases him too. This opens up a window in in the sense that we're perfectly pleasing on the one hand to God through Christ Jesus, cleansed by his blood. But there's this secondary way in which the scriptures say we're pleasing to him by the way in which we conduct ourselves in our lives and vocations. And that's what's in view here. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And Peter continues, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This renders our whole lives and all of our vocations completely filled with meaning because we have the ability to do the right thing, even if we are punished, because no good deed goes unpunished in this fallen world, it seems, but entrusting ourselves that the Lord sees it. So even if it doesn't have this positive, pragmatic effect, even if we can't see any results, we know that the Lord sees and it's pleasing to him. We know that just as the Lord Jesus says that one who gives even something so insignificant as a cup of cold water to a little child in his name will never lose his reward, so also we will not lose our reward for the good which we do in this life or in that life which is to come. And of course, the large catechism all through the commandments is filled with this kind of language and encouragement. This really is, in many ways, the antidote to the kind of meaninglessness we find in our world today, where all of our vocations seem meaningless, perfunctory, and slaving. We've lost sight that all of these things are the spiritual worship and spiritual sacrifices by which we daily worship and please our God. Who again, first and foremost, so loved us that he gave his son as the ultimate sacrifice and the sacrifice by which he not only forgives all our sins, but cleanses all our good works so that these two are pleasing in his sight. All right, and we're going to see that kind of pattern emerge as we go along. So 
uh, 21, for to this you have been called. To what? To doing good and suffering for it. To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. So you see two things here. You see the gospel that Christ suffered for you to take away your sins. That's the gospel. But you also see Christ as the very template of what it means to be Christian. And in fact, you see the cross as the very pattern of our lives and vocations. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, a template, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. See how that is parallel with when you do good? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Which, by the way, I think that that above all, might be one of the most underrated proofs of his divinity. What's the first thing that rises up in your heart when you receive an unkind comment on social media or an email lambasting you? (laughs) Can you believe the audacity? Someone on the internet's wrong. I gotta correct this. I can't imagine the fact that someone would critique me. Instantly, our hearts flare up with all kinds of rejoinders and comebacks and the desire to be vindicated. The fact that this is not part of our Lord Jesus, I find one of the most profound proofs of his divinity. (laughs) That he opened not his mouth, even though he is the only one who's truly innocent and truly unworthy of all that was heaped upon him. Even so, he's the only one who opens not his mouth. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, to God the Father. So there's a pattern and template that even as we do good, We are reviled. We suffer. We respond not with reviling and not with threatening, but rather just as our Lord Jesus entrusted himself to the Father, so also do we, knowing that God in due time will judge justly. That's the pattern and template, the example as the ESV has it. And then 24, he himself, Christ himself, bore our sins in his body, on the tree that we might have forgiveness no not here now that's most certainly true but that's not his point here that we might die to sin and live to righteousness You see, at times the scriptures set forth the crucifixion of Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And in other places, the sacrifice of Jesus is set forward as a template, model, and example to us. And that is precisely the case here. Christ himself bears our sins in his innocent body, unjustly bearing our sins, unjustly bearing the curse of the law that should fall upon us to die cursed on a tree. And here, in order that we, in looking to him, might 
die to sin and live to righteousness. And then very interestingly, Peter now quotes from Isaiah 53, and look how he takes the sense. By his wounds you have been healed. This isn't here specifically the healing of forgiveness, even though, again, no one's going to deny that. Here, it is a different kind of healing. It is a healing of your soul, a healing of your mind, a healing of your view and perception of your vocations and life so that you would see not yourself as a slave, not yourself as, a, as being abused, not yourself as being a foot rag, but that you would see in all your vocations the template and calling. And what an unimaginable calling to be conformed into the image of Christ and him crucified. It's an unspeakable holiness, an unspeakable calling to which we have been called that God would so honor us that not only would he call us sons, after his only begotten son, but that he would invite us to so also take up our crosses and bear our crosses even as Christ bore his. And this then, though we are presently humbled, we will soon be exalted. And this suffering becomes an unspeakable glory that will be ours for all eternity. So this is the calling and the vision given to us here by St. Peter, that by the very wounds of Jesus, we might be healed. We might start to see and perceive things rightly, that it is good and gracious in God's sight to do good, even if that means we suffer for it, and to persist in good. And then, of course, the verse that we previously mentioned. For you were straying like sheep. And I like that. I mean, there's a sense in which because we're all sinful, we all continue to stray. That's why we confess our sins every day. We confess our sins every Sunday. That's true. But that's not what's in view here. What's in view here is a change. You were straying like sheep. See yourself now as gathered around the shepherd and learning from him and walking through life in the way that he walked. And of course, in the shadow of his cross and in the full forgiveness of your sins. But see yourself and your identity as a Christian properly like this. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. All right, then we're going to get into wives and husbands. But before we do, let's pause and see if you have any, any thoughts, reflections, comments, questions. It's all welcome. Well, within reason. <laughs> Hopefully this is reasonable. Uh, back uh, at chapter 17, or just before 18, uh, the last sentence, honor the emperor. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, the, the note in the Lutheran uh, study Bible says, even corrupt human authorities should be honored and obeyed as long as they... Do not command that Christians violate God's will. Mm-hmm. So imagine you live in a state where the government's advocating, you know, killing unborn kids or even infanticide. How do you, quote, honor the emperor, unquote? I can't imagine what that would be like. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> it's just dystopian. Just a fiction. Don't worry about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, what we're going to see, and, and as we, this is the first introduction we've had in the household code text to uh, to government here in First Peter, and we're going to see, and we'll make this argument a little bit more expansively when we get to Romans thirteen, and how it is that we ought to read that. But what's in view here is can can very easily be the distinction between authority or office and the one who holds that office. And so we can very much be irritated with the person in the office, but we ought not be irritated with the office itself. So, I mean, very low-hanging fruit here. And again, we're going to delve more deeply and more sophisticatedly into this in Romans 13. But the low-hanging fruit here is simply that anarchy is forbidden Christians. There is a hierarchy even in heaven. There is a authority in heaven and on earth. Authority and hierarchy aren't bad. Government is not bad. Structure and order are not bad. They're essential. And so we're never going to find ourselves in a place where we're rejecting that as such. And how, what, what might a mistaken Christian approach to that be? I have no king but Christ. I'm not subject to anyone's rules. I'm not subject to any other authorities. I am very mistaken, very ham-fisted. But the scriptures would say, no, you are. This is God's good government, God's good order. And he sets this in place to, as Paul's going to say, punish evildoers and reward those who do good. Now, when someone is in that office that is corrupt, that puts a wrinkle into it, doesn't it? Because then we may say that that person is being unfaithful to their office. And at times, we may even go so far as to say, I refuse to obey them. If they're commanding something that God forbids or forbidding something that God commands, we say, I must obey God and not man. And of course, the Old Testament is filled with such examples from the Exodus to Daniel, the three men in the fire, and on and on we go. Uh, Oh, remember, um, this might be fitting. Remember in the Exodus where Pharaoh, and this is around the time of the birth of Moses, commands that the midwives are to put the Hebrew children to death, the Hebrew baby boys to death. Do you remember that? And the midwives don't. And the scriptures say that this, I mean, the scriptures applaud and commend this as the right thing. And they even lie. The midwives say, oh, the Hebrew women are too vigorous. They give birth before we can get there. Good on them. We have two examples. We have an example of a Christian lie. (laughs) Early church fathers have a lot of fun with that. But, I mean, let's not get all too hoity-toity. I see a lot of people wearing makeup around here, so... Are all deceits wrong? Uh, now, <laughs> so um, a lot of people wearing clothing around here. Very sophisticated deceits you have going. So we do have a, a Christian lie and a Christian subversion of government. Right there in that text having to do specifically with the abortion question. Right? So that might give you some data there too. Um, I got lost in my own uh, thoughts there. I hope I answered your question specifically. All right. Uh, I don't want anyone to get offended by this, but in verse... I've covered myself. Um, 
verse 22, it says, in his steps. Mm. And I've always found <coughs> the what would Jesus do thing offensive to me. Mm-hmm. Because there's no way I can do what Jesus did. And I find that not confusing, but I think it would be a stumbling block to some new Christians. I So the scriptures or what the evangelicals are doing with what would Jesus do? It kind of triggers it to me. Mm, what yeah. would Jesus do? So there's a right way to understand Christ as the pattern. I suppose there could be an aberrant way. And with a phrase, what would Jesus do? Perhaps there's a right way to understand that phrase. But perhaps there's many ways of misunderstanding through that phrase. And I think that that's where I've been critical of that phrase from time to time. And I know many other Lutherans have too. That's because we tend to see it being used aberrantly and really flippantly with no sense of context whatsoever. I mean, what would Jesus do? I don't know. Maybe he would walk on the water. Maybe he would fashion a whip out of cords and drive you out of the church. I mean, I, it's, it's so open-ended as to be meaningless. And then it kind of smacks of this, uh, well, if Jesus is going to do it, I'm going to do it. And I've even got the bracelet to prove it. And, you know, you can check out my Christian cred. Uh, so there seems to be a little bit of like, oh, I'm pulling it off. How are you doing? How's your walk with Jesus? Are you doing what, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's a little contextual here to Southern Orange County and some of the victory, victory, I'm living the glorious life and you're not type of mentality. And then maybe that's why it all rubs us wrong here in our context. But, you know, in theory, if you were to blast off out of context and somewhere, if someone were to say to you, you know, hey, are you supposed to walk the way that Jesus walked? There's plenty of scriptures that say yes, that use that very language. And what an honor and high calling there is in that. Now, we want to understand it biblically. And what we're going to see is that the cross is at the very heart and center of that. The forgiveness of sins is at the very heart and center of that. Indeed, it's the very pattern of it. And maybe I've stumbled upon yet another way in which that phrase, you know, what would Jesus do, especially as it's marked on the bracelet, you know, is it patterned after the cross? Is it patterned after self-sacrifice? Is it patterned after vocation? And these things we're seeing in the scriptures. Not usually. Not usually. And so we have room to be critical there, too. But it is nuanced, and I'm glad you brought it up. And I don't think we should necessarily dismiss it out of hand, but we should seek very carefully what it is the person intends by that phrase. Could a gentle correction just be, what would Jesus have me do? Maybe so. Maybe so. I, I, I think that the only thing I would say there is... Maybe, and maybe I'm just hung up on the bracelet. <laughs> but, but it kind of, it, it, it tends to smack, again, in our Southern California context, it tends to smack just a little bit of what our Lord warns about in Matthew 6, not doing your works so that they'd be seen by others. And I, I guess maybe that's uh, the concern is that it's like, hey, I got the bracelet, I'm pulling it off, how are you doing? It, you know, wouldn't it be better to have that written on your heart rather than on a bracelet? And so you pause and you say to yourself, what would my Lord do? Or what would my Lord have me do? I think either of those would be fine. And much in keeping with our Lord's teaching in Matthew 6, where this is taking place internally in our hearts, 
um, in secret, as it were, where God rewards in secret, and that then we would conduct ourselves in exactly that way. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, and again, I'm not trying to be nitpicky here. If a little kid's got on the what would Jesus do bracelet and that helps him and reminds him, I, what's wrong with that? I, yeah, I don't know. I don't have any problem with that. I, I think there may be a simple answer to the question, what would Jesus do? He would do the right thing for the right reason, regardless of adverse consequences to himself. And well isn't said. this what the passage is commanding us to do? The Absolutely. right thing for the right reason. Now, we're not going to do it, you know, because we are sinful creatures. But that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. The right yeah, yeah. thing for the right reason, regardless of adverse consequences to ourselves. Yes. Now, I think a lot of people, when they say that, what would Jesus do? They mean, should I get the beer right now? <laughs> right? Or, or whatever. You know, right, in other words, right. they're, at, they're looking for specific guidance about specific acts. Mm-hmm. And I don't mm-hmm. think that's what this passage is saying. It's saying, do the right thing for the right... You're supposed to already know what the right thing is. You know, right. you're not supposed to be fig- right, trying to psychoanalyze Jesus to figure out how he would behave in this case. You, right. you know what the right thing is. Don't do it. Don't do the wrong thing. Very fair point. I think, yes, I think that that uh, adds to the conversation wonderfully. Yeah, thank you. My two cents worth. I've always found it easier just to simply rephrase that and simply ask, what did Jesus do? And that gets me back on track. I, yeah, sure. I, I'm not going to speculate what he may or may not do. I know what he did. Right. And that, <laughs> and that points me in the right direction as to what I should do. Yeah, absolutely. And if that what he did, even in your mind, is foremost the cross for me, you're right back on track with what Peter's doing. You know, I think that that's the big problem with, with so much of American evangelicalism is it's like, all right, well, we got the cross stuff because we had to do that because otherwise we couldn't go to heaven. Now get the cross out of the way and it's about me doing what Jesus did, which it has that major problem. Where the scriptures say, do what Jesus did, the cross is always front and center. You, you never, in, in biblical Christianity, you never go past the cross. You never say, cross, get out of here. It's time for my uh, sanctification. You know, you say, no, the cross right here so that I have my justification flowing into my sanctification. The sanctification being patterned after the cross itself. So that sanctification in some ways becomes a mirror of justification or justification in the sense of the very atoning death of Jesus becomes the pattern of my sanctification, right? So you're never moving away from the cross even as you're going about sanctification. Yeah, so great point, Eric. Thank you. Really appreciate that, too. Sorry I said your name. Now you're going to be on some list. (laughs) All right. Very good. Anything else we want to touch on, or should we go a little further? All right, let's go just a pinch further. So, likewise, or in the same way, these thoughts are connected. Again, chapter and verse are arbitrarily, sorry, uh, often arbitrarily inserted. And for my taste, I wouldn't necessarily put it here simply because it's important that we see that Peter wants this, these conversations to all flow together. So 3.1 is really an outcrop of what we have just read. So likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. What would be the specific reference to this? Likewise, if we want to get real tight, we go back to chapter 2, verse 18. 
servants be subject to your masters, so likewise wives be subject to your own husbands. Now, these bookend, that subjectivity, if you will, uh, in the pattern of the cross of Jesus. Continuing with the thought, middle of verse 1, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Wives, this is your superpower. This is your superpower. And I, I've addressed this before um, in Ephesians when we, when we looked at that, that a, attacking a husband verbally or physically does not get you the result you want. But being subject to him frequently will. Even if it won't get the result you want, it will nonetheless be pleasing in God's sight. So this is indeed a hidden superpower. It doesn't work all the time in the sense of being efficacious, but it does indeed please God all of the time, and so it is worthwhile. The subject being subject to husbands, even in, in the case where a Christian wife is married to an unchristian husband. That's this language of if some, some husbands do not obey the word, these husbands, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. So in modeling Christ crucified to an unbelieving husband, you stand a chance of converting said unbelieving husband. Verse 2 continues the thought, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So the unbelieving husband sees the respectful and pure conduct of the wife and he's ashamed of his own ugliness and ashamed of his own sins and ashamed of the way he lords himself over his wife and he sees her purity of heart, his respectfulness, and he's changed. He too wants what she has. He too wants the forgiveness of his sins. He too wants to walk in a different way and conduct his vocation as husband in a different way. That's what's in view here. Verse 3, do not let your adorning, again talking to wives here, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. And again, this is... um, not forbidding these things, that's not the point he's after, but don't let your adorning be external, verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of your heart. Hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So again, look at the way that the vocation is shaped and formed in God's sight, not because of the husband's worthiness or unworthiness or not even necessarily for any uh, efficacious means, just simply because this is pleasing and precious in God's sight. So this directed to women, obviously there are ways we could make it parallel to men. That's just not what Peter's up to. 
But don't adorn yourself with external beauty, but rather with internal beauty, which is imperishable. And here he lists the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women or wives, same language as in verse 1, who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord or Master. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. All right, so does that mean you have to call your husband Lord or Master? Yes. <laughs> I heard a yes, you better duck. Yeah. So I, there's no command to do so, but what do you see? You see an extreme case presented where Sarah is so godly, she went to these extremes in obeying Abraham and even calling him Lord, and she becomes a modern, uh, excuse me, a model and template for that submission that wives are called to. Now, what happens if, if uh, her husband or any husband were, again, to say to you as wives, um, you must do something that God forbids or you must not do something that God commands? Well, you must obey God and not man. Okay, so you must... And, you know, is, is this where the brakes are put on the husband and his vocation? No, this isn't where the brakes are put on husband and his vocation. That belongs to another section. Um, So this is where we can see the siloed character of look at the job description that God gives to wives. Silo off. Don't look over at somebody else's to-do list or job description. Just pay attention to what God has for you. And then husbands, in turn, will need to do the same. We're not going to pay attention to the wife's to-do list. We're not going to pay attention to how she's doing. Because, again, the whole point of vocation is that in serving the other, we're serving God. So, whether you're, if, even if you have a wife, let's say, who is the exact opposite of this, she's rebellious, disrespectful, the antithesis of submissive, etc., etc., are you thereby exonerated for not fulfilling your duties as husband according to God's word? No. It's siloed off. So each one of the sexes, husbands and wives, we need to mind our own business, look at our own playbook that God gives us, and seek to please him. All right. Well, we got to the controversial stuff. And alas, there's no time for questions. (laughs) We'll see you all next week. The Lord be with you.